Well, we're continuing this morning in our study of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. If you've uh, been away for the holidays or you missed a few things, let me uh, remind you that our current series is going to take us through the end of 2023 uh, because the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession is a doctrinal standard of our church. It's what we believe here at CRBC, and our overall goal is not just to communicate what we believe, that's part of the goal, but of course it is to introduce you to what is a a very um, um, apt summary of the Christian faith and to show you why uh, the things that are taught and expounded there are important to know what you believe, or should say what we believe, and why we believe it. That's kind of the goal of our current series. Our present focus is in is on what is called uh, the first principles. The first principles cover, um, I guess it's the basis upon which true theology is built. And that is, of course, Scripture in chapter 1, the doctrine of God in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and then, of course, creation, chapter 4, 5, and 6. This is Uh, These things are the ground, the basis upon which everything else follows. Everything in in the Christian life, everything in our salvation is built upon what you believe about Scripture. What you believe about God. What you believe about creation. Remember John Calvin saying the two most important things that we must know is ourselves and our God. Right? To know God, but also to know that we are not God, that we are sinful. And so you can't move forward with anything else. Whether we're talking about justification, salvation, whether we're talking about the church, whether we're talking about the end times, whether we're talking about the Christian life, whether we're talking about baptism or the Lord's Supper. You can't adequately or rightly move on to those things uh, until you obviously have this foundation built because everything follows from that. So uh, today our focus in this first principle section is uh, chapter 2. We're going to cover this uh, today and uh, next week as well. Just a couple of notes before we jump in. Um, maybe some of you were here in 2022. Um, I taught through chapter 2 of our confession. Actually, um, I taught through chapter 2, paragraph 1, not paragraph 2 and 3. And for those of you who are here, you might remember that I took 15 weeks to teach through chapter 2, paragraph 1. So I've got two weeks now (laughs) to teach through 1, 2, and 3. So I hope you'll bear with me in this because it's going to be very abbreviated. We're going to go really fast. We're just going to hit the high notes. It's going to be, as I like to say, a blitzkrieg through God and the Holy Trinity. Um, I do want to stress, though, don't overlook its importance. Again, as I said uh, regarding the first principles, but especially when we're talking about the doctrine of God, everything in reality, everything in life, death, salvation, depend upon your knowledge and understanding of of who God is. 
And if you weren't here for those 15 weeks when we studied the doctrine of God, uh, maybe this is kind of a, a great stimulus for you to devote the new year to studying who God is. Right? I can recommend a lot of really good books. Think about J.F. Packer's famous book, uh, Knowing God. Great place to start. Uh, R.C. Sproul's book, the, the Holiness of God. Mark Jones has an excellent little book. It's, it's written in a devotional format with short little chapters, I think 30 short little chapters, called God Is. It's phenomenal. Uh, Sam Renahan has a book, Dr. Sam Renahan has a book on these three chapters called uh, De- uh, Decree and, what is it? Somebody help me here. Deity and Decree. Deity and Decree. He also has one on impassibility. Those are, those are great books that will, you know, uh, help you understand this. So I don't, want you, I, don't, I don't want you to miss the importance of the doctrine of God. And if you've never studied it, um, I would strongly encourage you to consider doing that, perhaps even this year. C.H. Spurgeon said, Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing will so magnify the soul of man, the whole soul of man, as the devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. So following this, let me just start with, before we jump into the chapter, um, highlighting just really briefly, um, why is this doctrine so important? Based upon what I already said, of course, doctrine of God. What are some obvious answers to this? Why do you think the doctrine of God is important? All things start from Him. All things start from Him. Informs our worship. Informs our worship. And our Christian life, our service. Maybe think about the great um, sin or danger particularly in the Old Testament, emphasized idolatry. Worshipping a false god. Worshipping a distorted understanding or depiction of God. A couple of brief things. Uh, the doctrine of God receives prominent focus in the Psalms. If, if you've read through the Psalms, um, then you know that psalm after psalm after psalm recount his attributes, his perfections, his power. Um, And so I just, I think it'd be easy to say in times of difficulty, there's nothing so stabilizing than knowing who God is. I mean, that's what a lot of the psalms deal with, difficulty. I'm surrounded by enemies, right? I'm I'm in despair, I'm... I'm I'm discouraged. Uh, My feet almost slipped. My steps, you know, knowing who God is, is that stability. Think of um, Psalm 46, which the famous hymn, Mighty Fortresses Our God, was taken from. Right? The psalmist sings of what a a fortress, what a refuge, what a a rock God is. is. He is that immovable foundation. He's that protection. He's that means by which we take great comfort and we can trust in him. So I think if you just read through the Psalms, 
we're struck. You ought to be struck by the time that the psalmist runs back to who God is when things really get bad. That's his refuge. Also, I would say the psalms are the prayer and worship book of the church. And so as Kim said a moment ago, it's the nature of God. It's the attributes of God that lead to right, proper, sincere worship. Again, the the psalmist um, recounts God over and over and over again. And that always leads to praise, to adoration, to worship. And so if we were to rightly worship, we we must know who God is. Of course, that's stating the obvious. A.W. Tozer said that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing to us in our entire life. What comes to our mind when we think about God, there's nothing more important than that. Right knowledge of God touches every area of faith and practice. Well, that's very brief why it's important. So I hope in some sense to uh, pique your interest. Um, Let's jump into this chapter. Let's approach this chapter. And before we do, I'm going to start with some new words. I'm going to start with some groundwork before we even look at the chapter. In the history of the church... Christians have long used very precise, careful language to speak about God. Uh, It's because, you know, scripture and reason and logic and deduction help us properly speak of who God is, but also because of the threat of heresy. When you have the Arians, of course, saying, well, begotten means this. It means that Jesus was created because... If I say, in speaking about a human, this son was begotten, we know that that son had a beginning, right? Well, that's heresy. Jesus Christ is eternal. He's the eternal son of God. So the history of the church has struggled at times to form very specific language, uh, technical language, in order to distinguish truth and heresy. Truth from heresy. And this is very important. And we need to keep this in mind as we work through this. And, and today I just want to give you two concepts, though, uh, or two uh, kind of ideas uh, that help us understand, uh, excuse me, help us approach this chapter. First is the idea of archetype and ectype. I, I warned you, we're going to use some precise technical language here. Maybe you've heard this before, uh, but archetype, what is the definition of an archetype? It's like an original, uh, an epi- epitome, the ultimate example of something. Uh, take, take a painting, for example. Um, maybe take a famous painting and then maybe your, your child's um, attempt at copying that painting. Right? One is the original And then you have your child who makes an attempt uh, to draw the same thing, but it's an imitation of the original. The archetype would be the original. The ectype is the kind of 
It's not the same, but it is the same. There's a relation there of the original. Well, this is key to understanding and talking about who God is and what he is like. There's the ultimate archetype of fatherhood, for example, God's father. Or the ultimate archetype, uh, excuse me, archetype of love or mercy or justice. And, and that is unique to God alone. There's none like him. Nobody can love like God loves. Everything else that maybe is love is an ectype. It is a, a type or it has a relation as a copy of the original. And this is key because we need to understand that, that, that God, like for example, his love, it's not just that his love is bigger than ours and better than ours. No, his love is entirely different than ours. It's both quantitatively and qualitatively different. Because God's not a creature. He's not just bigger and better. He's altogether different. And the other kind of relation to this is we're also going to use analogical language, an analogy. All of our language that describes God is by way of analogy. We're drawing an analogy. Uh, you know, my wife was as mad as a tiger. That's an analogy. I'm not saying that she is an animal, that she has real claws, or has kind of like the instinctive, um, um, what we would call anger of a tiger, ferociousness. But there's a relation there that helps us understand. So when we talk about God, it's all in analogical language. The arm of the Lord, that's an analogy. It doesn't have an arm. But it gives us kind of idea of his power. So I throw these out there just because this is how the language of the confession, uh, sorry, the, 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 the confession entails this type of language, these types of categories, and it helps us maintain the creator-creature distinction, which is vital to properly understanding who God is. Otherwise, we're going to make God out to be just like us. He's just a bigger and better version of us. Rather than someone who is altogether different, altogether transcendent, altogether um, in every way different than anything created. All right. With that in mind, and if you have any questions, I'm not going to stop because we have so much to get through. So just raise your hand and I will be glad to stop briefly and answer your questions. So probably not going to leave time for questions but that doesn't mean you can't ask. Um, let's go ahead and read chapter 2, paragraph 1. <clears throat> the Lord our God is but one living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, who only have immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, 
most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. A couple of things as we jump in. First of all, this chapter is taken from... Um, it, it, the, the particular Baptist didn't just come up with this on a whim. Woo! Got a storm brewing outside. Uh, didn't just come up with this on a whim. This is built, obviously, upon the Savoy and then the uh, Savoy Declaration of the uh, Congregationalists uh, in Puritan England, and then, of course, upon uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith and uh, both of those documents as well pull these things from previous. Of confessions of faith, pull these things from previous councils and creeds in the history of the church. This is a document, this is a paragraph that's been carefully, carefully crafted, um, uh, entailing or including all sorts of streams of thought and confessions down through the history of the church. It's very beautiful, it's very important. The second thing the, as we approach this today, we're just going to talk about. uh, incommunicable attributes. And we'll leave the rest of it for next week. You understand what I mean when I say there are communicable and incommunicable attributes of God? I see some nodding from the pastor. (laughs) What is an incommunicable attribute of God? An attribute that we do not share with God. Yes, excellent. Um, So, and for example, God is spirit. Uh, Well, I guess in some sense we are both body and spirit, body and soul. Okay, infinite. We are not infinite. We are finite. We in no way share God's infinitude. But when it says that God is wise, well, men can be and women can be wise as well. We share that attribute. It's not the same, but we have a relation there. We're just going to talk about what we don't share with God this morning. That's our focus, the first half of this chapter. He is but one living and true God. And again, I'm going to skedaddle through these terms really quickly. Uh, So... I don't know. Put your seatbelt on. He is but one living and true God. This, of course, teaches us. It confesses that God is life itself. And that he gives life to all things. He is the living and true God. John 5.26 For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also To have life in himself. What this means is that God isn't just living. God isn't just alive. God isn't just sovereign over life. But he is life. He is life itself. 
and 1 Timothy 6.23, he gives life to all things. He is truth itself as well. And all things are true in him, from him, and through him. Being truth itself, God, of course, cannot lie. We're told that in scripture. In God, there is never any hint of falsehood. He is true God. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a truth, not one truth, not an aspect of truth, but again, the epitome, the archetype, the ultimate, truth itself. Pretty basic stuff, but it sets the groundwork. God is life. God is truth. Everything in creation relates to Him in that way. Everything in creation receives life from Him. Every truth finds its ultimate truth in Him. Whose subsistence is in and of Himself. Here... Psalm 36, 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. A subsistence is a mode of existence. That's what the term means. Um, A mode of being, of existing. And the statement is, in and of himself, God is his own thing. William Ames put it this way. Nothing exists from eternity but God. And God is not a matter or part of any creature, but is the only maker. If God didn't exist, the world wouldn't exist, and vice versa. Everything that is creaturely exists, but God is existence. Everything in creation has being, but God is being. He is the fountain of life. God exists entirely in and of himself, apart from creation altogether. Right? He is the fountain from which everything flows. That's what the statement is getting at. A traditional way of speaking about this is the term aseity. It's uh, a Latin term. It's from the word um, ase. It means... From himself. Maybe you've, maybe to illustrate this, have you ever heard someone say, I wonder what God was doing before creation? Maybe you've heard someone say, Well, why did he create? He was lonely. And he created us in order to have fellowship with him. Well, when people say things like that, that undermines the doctrine of the Trinity, for one. Because the Father, Son, and Spirit have had perfect communion and fellowship for all eternity. He wasn't lonely. It also distorts God's nature and His being and His purposes. Because what it does is it actually imprisons God. 
It hinders his freedom and his sovereignty in a way that makes him dependent upon the world for something. For fellowship. So he's not lonely. But when we understand that God is life itself, there is no sense in which he is caused or dependent upon another. Why did he create that? Love. Love. He didn't need glory. You can say that in one sense. He created for his own glory. Well, yes, he did. But there's no lack of glory in him. That he needed extra glory. He created simply out of love. Because he loved us. Because he longed to share himself with us. I remember, I've said this before, but I heard about a, um, I forget who it was, a pastor who was talking to a Muslim on an airplane. And the one thing the Muslim could not really come to grips with was the love of God. It's easy for a Muslim to understand justice and law and obedience and be holy. But they couldn't get their mind around love. Why would an awesome God love us? Sadly, we see many of those same distortions in Christian circles as well. It's a foundation for creation is love. He's all say. He's of himself. He's entirely independent. In every respect from creation. This is what scripture means when it refers to God as everlasting. It's from himself. Next. God is infinite in being and perfection. This gets at the fact that he has no limitations whatsoever. And this qualifies all of his other attributes. In being, in existing, and in perfection, all of his attributes. He's infinite in both. Psalm 147.5. His understanding is without measure. Psalm 103.11. His steadfast love is unmeasurable. Ephesians 1.19 speaks of the immeasurable greatness of his power. There are no limitations upon any of his attributes, whether we're talking about love, whether we're talking about power, whether we're talking about strength, whether we're talking about mercy, whether we're talking about wisdom. There's no limitation. Here, uh, when we talk about his um, infinity or God being infinite, he is infinite in essence. It's his being, who he is. He's infinite in time and place, or time and space, maybe. He's also infinite in incomprehensibility. In the sense that we, and we'll get to this in a second, we cannot fully, or ever will we ever fully understand him. See, the danger here is what uh, we might call uh, superhero syndrome. 
where we begin to think God, of God like a superhero. He's like us, but he's just got superpowers. But again, God is not just bigger and more powerful. He's not just infinite in his abilities, which he is, but he's also infinite in his being, his essence. He, he isn't the greatest of all possible beings. He is as if he's like the chief of a line of beings. He's in an altogether different class, an altogether different category. He's not bound by anything that marks creaturely existence. And this is where we would say things like, he's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. His presence fills heaven and earth. Right? Because if he's not infinite, he's not perfect. He's not infinite. He's not God. He's not infinite. He's a creature. Let's parse this out a little bit more when we think about whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. This is the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. It's a mouthful. While we can know God through his self-revelation, we cannot comprehend him in his essence, in entirety. There, there, we, for all of eternity, those who, um, uh, the, the people of God who will uh, live with God face to face in the new heavens and the new earth, we will spend all of eternity learning about God, growing in our knowledge of God. We will see, not dimly as we see now, but that's what we will be doing in some sense for all of eternity. I mean, just think about what you're thinking about now and learning about God now is going to continue forever. You're never going to graduate with like, right, I'm a master of divinity. <laughs> I'm a master of God. Because if we, a creature, could comprehend the creator, he wouldn't be infinite. If we, the creature, could comprehend the creator, then we would be creator ourselves. We would be deity. The infinite cannot comprehend the, in, the excuse me, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. We would be divine if we ever came to a point where we comprehended him. God's essence is beyond the reach of mere mortals. That's why we learn God through his works. We learn about God chiefly through his works. We can't peer into his essence ultimately. We can only grasp what he has chosen to reveal to us. God is incomprehensible. He's saying truth to the angels, right? 
I'm sorry, what? That, would be true for the that is true for the angels as well, because they are creatures. A creature cannot, a fi- the finite cannot understand the infinite. Otherwise, the infinite is not infinite. He is a most pure spirit. Uh, there's a positive and negative sense to this. The positive is he is spirit. The negative is he is invisible, not visible, without body, parts, or passions. Here we, of course, can look at John 4, 21 through 24, where Jesus tells the woman at the well, God is spirit. We see this in the Old Testament as well. God is not corporal. He has no body. He's not made up of material matter. A spirit hints at his infinitude. He's not confined to a particular place or location. He is independent. He's not bound by any laws, any categories, any needs. He is not dependent upon anything. And of course, as a spirit, he is incomprehensible. If he was not a spirit, he would not be incomprehensible. He would be confined to some sort of uh, category or existence, bound by something, place or time or body. One um, implication of this is that God is omnipresent. God has no bounds. He has no limitations whatsoever. He's not limited to somewhere. He fills all, but is contained by nothing. Now, of course, he manifests his presence um, in different ways. Like, for example, uh, today you can't see the sun. Clouds have obscured it, but we know it's there. There are times when we are, well, that's the essence of sin as well. That we don't realize that God is present. There are times when he chooses to reveal himself. Like the, the sun bursting through the crowd, clouds. There's a time when the sun reveals itself and we are reminded, oh yes, it's right there. And I better put on some sunscreen, right? There are times where God specially shows his presence. But he's not more present there than he is anywhere else. We talk about the special presence of God. It is because that is where he uh, particularly and explicitly reveals his presence to our benefit. But it's not like, oh, well, the special presence of God is at church. That means he's, he's more here than he is in the depths of Sheol. Karen? I'm sorry, because what? When the Bible talks about removing Yeah, he's removing the manifestations of his presence. Um, again, when he particularly reveals himself, we are blessed by that. So that's an act of judgment. And that's how we understand it. It's an analogical language. I'm going to turn my back on you. I'm going to turn my ear to you. I'm going to remove my presence from you. It's an act of judgment. And uh, because when God specially reveals himself, his presence is when his blessings flow to us. So he's not bound by any limitations whatsoever. He is present everywhere fully as he fills heaven and earth. And I would say as well, he, you know, uh, maybe a, a 
better way of understanding it, you know, he's not 50% here and 75% there. He's beyond measure. He fills heaven and earth. I gotta hurry. Stephen Charnick said, if God did not fill the whole world, he would be determined to some place and excluded from others. And so his substance would have bounds and limits. And then something might be conceived that is greater than God. So he's not absent, but his blessings are absent. Yes, his presence manifested. Um, Without body parts or passions is the negative side of this. We refer to this as the simplicity of God. I would say this is one of the most important aspects to knowing who God is. Might sound insulting to say that God is simple. You know? <laughs> if I were to, you know, say to you or about you, Sam, you're a very you're a simple guy. I mean, like, it's kind of an insult. <laughs> I don't mean that, brother. But like it sounds like that, but it's it's a key aspect of his of his glory. And it what it means is God is free from composition. He's not the sum total of various parts and attributes. He can't be divided up. Whatever he is, he is. He can't be divided up like a a pie chart. Uh, I used this example last time, two years ago, when I taught through this three years ago. Uh, But think of a Lego man. Who's made up of various parts. Um, You don't have like, okay, so you have this head, you have this torso, you have legs here. Like considered individually, these things don't constitute a Lego man. It's only when you put them together that you have the Lego man. It's when these parts come together that the Lego man actually exists or is made whole in that sense. God is not like that. You can't say, well, you throw in a little power, you throw in a little wisdom, you throw a little, a little eternality, and these coming together make up God. Think of it in relation to a pie chart. God isn't a collection or a composition of various things that come together to form a whole. Like he's 10% grace, he's 50% love. You can't slice him up in that sense. Everything that is God is God. Dick. You think unity might be a better term than simplicity? I'm sorry, what? God is unity rather than simplicity. Well, unity still, you could say that he's made up of various parts that come together into unity. And that still doesn't get at what simplicity is saying. Simplicity is, is again, just saying that these things don't come together to form God. No composite. Because they would be greater than God if they could come together. Like, those parts would make him who he is. Rather than God being God. We continue on this. God is identical with his attributes. He isn't just good. He's goodness itself. He isn't just power. He's power itself. 
And His goodness and His power don't come together to make Him who He is. His goodness is His power. His power is His goodness. His attributes do not differ from one another or from His essence, ultimately, because He is identical with everything that He is. Now, to us, they're distinguished. We can distinguish His love from His justice. But to Him, His love is His justice. Uh, My seminary professor used to put it this way. He'd say, in the... Destroying the Sodom and Gomorrah. Was God loving or was God just? Yes. The answer is yes. He was 100% loving and he was 100% just. Now, from our standpoint, we see, well, that's a manifestation of his justice. That's right. God is simple. Everything that he does is fully everything that he is. Um. I gotta conclude. We're not gonna make it through all this. Um, let me just finish with why simplicity is important. If God was composite, made up of various attributes or things that come together, then these parts would rule over Him. His love then might overrule His righteousness, and this is a very prominent heresy, even in the modern church. Well, God is love. Don't you know that? As if love rules every other attribute. No, God is love and God is just. He's everything. But it also helps us to see his perfect consistency. That all of his attributes harmonize with one another. I mentioned this already. In all of his actions, he is 100% his attributes. It also means that God is not capable of being broken down or dissolved or corrupted. He can't be dismantled. If he's the makeup of a certain unity, then that unity could fall apart and he would be less than God. It's not as if these things come together to make him who he is. He is who he is. And so... The simplicity of God is important to understanding who He is. As infinite, as spirit, as perfect, as consistent, as I'll say, life itself, independent, incomprehensible. The simplicity of God is where all of these things come together in that sense and capture all of that truth. That God is his own thing. Love doesn't rule over him as if it's floating around in the universe somewhere. Material matter doesn't rule over him as if he had a body and was confined to one place. He is who he is. Great book by uh, James Dozell. Uh, all that is in God is God. Or I think it's just all that is in God. Phenomenal book published a few years ago. So on the doctrine of simplicity, R.C. Sproul, before he died, uh, said that it was one of the most important books of his generation. If you haven't read it, I'd recommend it. It gets at this idea that God is simple. Well, that's where we have to stop. We'll pick up next week with immutability. Um, with, of course, meaning that God does not change. 
And uh, we will move from there to the communicable attributes, holiness, love, mercy, and then go on and uh, hopefully finish chapter, uh, paragraph two and three as well. Let's go ahead and close in prayer as our time is up. Let's pray.